0: This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak to all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today on the show is Dan Zavarotny. He's the co-founder and COO of NutriSense. This is a company on a mission to personalize nutrition by leveraging CGM, that's continuous glucose monitoring, and machine learning. In simpler terms, it's a company that is reducing the risk for type two diabetes and heart disease helping people shed weight, and advising athletes and individuals on how to become the best versions of themselves. In this one, we discuss the early days and origin story of NutriSense, customer acquisition, channel marketing, and influencer-driven growth. We also chat about Dan's experience raising capital and how to make the nose. Feel less important, recruiting talent and what separates a great person from an average person and much, much more. So with that intro out of the way, let's get right to it. Here's my great chat with Dan Zavrodny. Before this episode, I was doing a little bit of research and what popped up was this article in Forbes that featured you guys. And I thought it was very cool because it was not just about NutriSense, but about the entire CGM space. And you're quoted as saying, there's a rising awareness about glucose as a vital sign and CGMs are the best way to capture glucose data as consumers are more and more taking responsibility for their health in their own hands. And I think it's an important quote because your product is not just for folks that are diabetic. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, we actually focus
1: on people who are not diabetic at all. Our belief is that people oftentimes are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, but they didn't one day go from healthy to diabetic type 2. It was a transitionary period where people had poor lifestyle decisions made over a decade or two decades, three decades, and they simply were not aware a lot of times. And so by educating the consumer, an individual early on, they're able to make decisions to change their lifestyle. You see this with every disease, right? No one ever goes from healthy to sick overnight. It's a lot of times a long-term process. And so the idea here is that, hey, why don't we look at people who are pre-diabetic? Why don't we look at people who are not diabetic at all? And understand what is it that's causing havoc in their body and try to adjust ahead of time.
0: So uh, something like 89 million Americans are pre-diabetic and 34 million are type 2 diabetic. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, think about that. It's one in three people. That is one in three people. Those numbers
1: are exorbitant. You know, this is several parts here, right? I mean, one of the negative parts is that, you know, we as Americans are very great marketers. And so we are often marketing our own food, which is not great. We go, no sugar. But then you add, you know, salt and fat and everything, all the other intolerable aspects to it. But. Because that people are eating things based on how fast can I eat it, how little time I have to make sure I can chew down the food and keep working. And so a lot of it is education. But the second thing is it's about understanding how to even change your behavior once you understand what is good and bad for you, right? And behavior change is the piece that we always forget. You know, you go to the doctor and you ask him, like, they do your test and blood test and they say, you're pre-diabetic. Or you might even have a pre-heart disease is what I call it. Or pre-something else, pre gout All these things, clinical terms that don't exist, but they are there. And how do you manage that? And the doctor always says, eat better exercise. What does eat better exercise mean? And sometimes you come back, they're like, great, you ate better and you exercise or you didn't. And a lot of times the doctors themselves are actually pre diabetic, right? To give you an example, I think something like I like 13% of our actual customers were doctors, nurses, physician assistants, right? Because people don't realize that, but most health professionals are not taught
0: nutrition. No, I think that's an important point. Doctors are not nutritionists, they're not dietitians. Anything that's health related when it comes to food and nutrition is, is usually not something that I find is in your sort of family physician's domain. As you point out, they're, they're often clients of yours. You know, you have an interesting background because before this, you were a healthcare consultant at KPMG. So talk to me about that transition. How did you go from management consultant in the healthcare space to founder entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, it was a very different kind of job, right? My job was to figure out how to optimize profitability for hospitals, insurance companies, medical device manufacturers. So it was less about health outcomes and more about profitability, which is a little bit at odds with what I'm doing now. And interestingly enough, you know, that was the career that I was aspiring to. You know, when you're younger, everyone inspires these careers. They want to either be a doctor or they want to be an investment banker or they want to be management consultant. These are kind of like the high end careers that everyone dreams about. So I got to one of these high-end careers and I started doing it and all the nice dinners, all the fun stuff. It was great for a while, but then you had a point where you actually want to do something you're passionate about. And so I started thinking about startups and different spaces. And I was in California and San Francisco and I met up with one of my friends I haven't seen in a decade actually. He, was, he just sold a company in a completely different space, in childcare space. And he was wearing a continuous glucose monitor. And he said, Hey, man, how's life? We were talking about stuff. He's like, I'm like, I'm a healthcare consultant. He's like, oh, I'm wearing this device. Do you know anything about it? And I happen to know a lot about it <laughs> because of my experience, both in healthcare, but also my sister's type one diabetic. So she's been wearing these devices for over a decade as well. So I've seen a hardware transform from just a device that used to be like $2,000 a day. Just you can do it once in a while only for the lead. So now it's getting to the point. It's like 200 bucks a month. I've seen this progression and it just clicked for me. My friend goes, I think about starting this company. Do you want to join? And I go, sure. <laughs> I quit my job two weeks later and just started it with him. And so he introduced me the idea of when you start, only two things matter, which is build and sell. He was an engineer in my background. So he started building the software. And he said, you got to go sell. And I, I think I said this before to people, but I like, sell what? We don't have anything. What am I selling here? And I don't even know how to sell. I'm not, you know, I'm a consulting in finance strategy. So I think trying to understand how to sell with never taking a marketing class in my life, never doing any sales of any kind, and Prague doesn't even exist. Became very interesting. Within two weeks, we started getting about it was like first six or seven thousand dollars in monthly revenue for the first two week after the two weeks, and then since then scaled, and now we're about a hundred
0: seventy employees, and three years in. It's amazing, and, and congratulations on the growth. But that first chapter must not have been easy. So when you look back, you know, it reminds me of of this old adage: like if you don't know who the head of sales is. It's you. (laughs) So it sounds like that's very apropos. I mean, you being that head of sales, that default head of sales for NutriSense, what were the first few interactions with prospects like? And who were those first few clients of yours? Basically, started looking up like how to get
1: customers online. And it was just like high-level strategies, run Facebook ads, Google ads, Instagram ads, get influencers, SEO. I'm just Googling these terms. And apparently, a lot of these things Cost a lot of money, you, you know. For example, SEO, you have to spend you know thousands, thousands of dollars to investment in it, and then you find out eighteen months later would you get traffic or not or whether it worked. So I start saying, "What can I do now and for cheap and or free right now?" And influencer marketing seemed like the road to go. I looked at it as like, "Hey, these people will market for me because they're way more handsome and they're way more they're better in front of an audience than I am." And so I just need to convince one of those guys, and they can convince everyone else, <laughs> right? And the nice thing about it too, you know, a lot of times you give them referral codes and stuff like that, and they will convert sales for you, but you pay a month later. So you basically have revenue today, but you pay back on the revenue
0: 30 days later. Yeah. I mean, those terms are very favorable for a startup. Is influencer marketing the way you guys went first? That's the way we went first. Fast forward to today, let's, let's just – because I know there's going to be listeners thinking about this now. If you were starting NutriSense today – and we're recording October 2022. Would this still be your first strategy going the influencer route? I think so. I actually do things. So.
1: I think the biggest question is if you have money or not to start with, right? We had no money. There are strategies that are much faster. I think personally, I would do influencer, but I would do my TikTok. I think TikTok would be the approach I would take, whether TikTok influencer or regular TikTok yourself. I, still, I think there's the ability also right now to become your own influencer in some ways. In an early channel TikTok, we've seen this in every channel, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. If you're early enough, there's still not enough traffic or there's not enough noise where you have the ability to break through. These other channels were very saturated where you yourself can't be an influencer. So here, I think it's either starting to become an influencer yourself on a sidewall, reach out to influencers. I mean, to give you a context, like I think we have 150,000 followers on Instagram now. And this is purely because other inf- other influencers would like tag us and talk about us, Right. But if you build that persona of the founders being a person instead of a company, it creates much more resonance with customers, with other influencers. My strong belief is that as we get bigger and other companies get bigger, you want to separate yourself and not be a company. You want to be a face of the company.
0: What does NutriSense's customer acquisition look like today across channel? So if you have, let's just use Easy round numbers. So, if you have one hundred dollars as your monthly marketing budget, how does that one hundred dollars get broken out between influencer, say, social media, Facebook, TikTok, whatever?
1: Sure, I would say twenty-five Facebook slash Instagram, twenty-five Google, probably fifteen TikTok, and ten in SEO, SEO slash content. So, the idea—I mean, we want the idea—is over time you want to invest in long-term channels. We really look at things in three dimensions. It's how much money do I have to spend on this versus the return it's going to bring me? How quickly brings the return and will it stop or not stop after I turn it off? Right. We we'll look at these three much? Mean by that is if you're on a Facebook ad, you get, you might spend it money now and you might get conversion right now. But once you turn the Facebook ad, it's done. Versus SEO, we invest money today to over and over and over. We spend money for a year and a half and we see no traffic and all of a sudden, bam, it kind of skyrockets. But then you own that space. So we always try to measure this this way, um, these channels to make sure that we have a mix. And so we all constantly want to increase the product mix of our investments in different channels. So when we started, it was... And by the way, influencer, you notice I didn't mention influencers, it's become a much smaller piece now. Because influencers are great uh, when you're starting off, but they're a little bit difficult to scale at a certain point. At a certain point to get enough volume and traction. When I say that, I mean, once you break a million dollars a month. That's what I mean at a certain point. It's not, you can keep going up to a million a month, I think, with influencers quite a bit. Because you get to a point where there's only so many influencers who are big, who are really high scale, like you know the Brad Pitts of the world. And a lot of those folks now, they just, they take cash up front. They don't do referrals. They don't do, uh, and they don't care about your conversion. And so the funnel changes. They become more like brand ambassadors. And so, though a lot of times those folks are restricted to like big brands who know they're like, we could spend 10, 20 million dollars in these celebrities and we don't care about RRI at all. So as a startup, you simply can't afford. So you hit a threshold of influencers that you just can't break through scalably because you got to hire more and more influencer marketers. At a certain point, you just, you manage, you're going to manage a 30-person team. So you have to kind of stop at a level versus you know Facebook ad, you run, you press go. And all of a sudden, whether you want to spend 100 bucks or a million bucks, like it's much easier.
0: Which of those channels provides the highest customer lifetime value? The highest ROI? Instagram right now. Do you see that changing? I guess you do. I mean, there, there, you, you've sort of alluded to it already that there's a lot of momentum happening on TikTok. It's not that saturated. Cost per click, I assume, is lower than Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. I mean, TikTok
1: is going to take over. We've talked about it for a couple of years now, but we're not seeing it. I mean, TikTok is – I mean, it's just destroying Facebook and it's destroying Google. I've read somewhere that like – I can't remember the number, but it's under 18. TikTok has number one search. For people like searching for restaurants on TikTok, people are using it more than Google. People are searching for like gyms to work out on TikTok. It's becoming a search engine in some ways. You know, if we look at like hacks on Facebook or Instagram, they've tripled in the last couple of years. And it's, you know, these companies know they can do whatever because they have nowhere else to go. So competition is healthy.
0: Yeah. And history often repeats itself. You know, it reminds me 2010 through 2012, a lot of these d c brands exploded because. You know, they were advertising on Facebook when it was not that saturated and CPC and CPM rates were low. And by default, CPA rates or CAC, if you prefer cost of acquisition, those metrics were very low compared to where they are today for a lot of brands. Fast forward to today, as you point out, you've got this duopoly of sorts. Cost of acquisition is through the roof for a lot of DTC brands and people can't make their unit economics work. And so they're looking to diversify. So what is that next channel? Well, here we go again. We're back to 2010, 2012-ish where TikTok is now playing the role of Facebook. I mean, exactly what's happening.
1: Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer and emotional intelligence coach and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectricCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered.
0: ElectricCast. I want to ask you about a strategy that you may or may not have thought of already. You know, You guys have Olympic athletes, professional athletes that are users of your product. They're customers first, let's call them. But they have the potential to be influencers in a big way, right? And be advocates for your brand. Do you think of them that way? I used to think about them that way.
1: I no longer do. I started having some of these folks, meeting some of these folks. And they're like, I've been using your product for a year and a half. I love it. I'm like, oh, it's a partner. And they're like, let me be my agent. And agent's like, hey, I have a sponsor with Nike for $5 million. I have a sponsor with Adidas for $10 million. I sponsorship with Garmin Watch or Apple Watch. And I, I've noticed that at that level... To be totally frank, I think it just comes down to money. It's not about the product you like. I mean, we've had actually some pretty famous people at a concert performance or an event wearing a device with our patch and you see the logo. And we'll repost it on our social media. And then their agent and PR person reaches out like, hey, can you please take that down your own permission? We're like, this is a live event, right? What do you mean you don't have permission? So why do we not have that? And so I'm very saddened to realize that I think at that level, very often people kind of work with whoever pays them the most. And I've seen this for a lot of my founder friends. Where They'll be like, oh, this person, and there's some really famous like Super Bowl winners and Super Bowl captains who are like, hey, this person's been using our product for 30 years. <laughs> not us, but the other company. And yeah, they can't endorse. They will not endorse. We just can't pay them enough. And it's, I mean, you start realizing
0: that like marketing isn't always the it seems, unfortunately. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your experience raising capital. So you guys have raised, I think, over 30 million at this point. Congrats. Talk about a quick ride right? Uh, being someone who went from you know zero startup experience to not only scaling a business successfully and, and now you're at 170 plus employees, as you mentioned, you guys have raised north of 32 million. So incredible. What have you learned through the venture funding path? I think majority of people quit too early. That's number one.
1: And to give you context, I think I looked at the list the other day and a number was around like we had 147 no's before we got one yes, right? That's 140, not first time phone calls. This is like sometimes we had second, third, fourth phone calls with people. So if you do like an average two and a half, three calls per no, you know, and you do 147 times three. And so now we're in mid 500s of people that are may or may not invest. And you do an hour to two hour per time. I mean, it's like now we're in like 1500 hours of getting no's, right? People sometimes think like, oh, I got 10 people say no to me. Uh, I think I'm done. You just got to keep going, keep going, right? And I think one of the things we did early on, because I'm a finance guy by background, is I wanted to quantify it because no's hurt a lot. They hurt a lot. And no matter how you know how confident you are as a human being, when somebody says, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you, it just, it, I mean, it kills the ego, it makes you question your own abilities. But when you have a benchmark of like, what is considered okay? So I started asking a lot of other founders of Ray Series A, like, how many no's did you get? And you had the anomalies where like the first person I talked, give me a yes. Someone's got, I got seventh person. And yes, other people who said 300 people and you're like, that's a little extreme. But the vast majority of people that I found got no's fell between about 120 to 150 no's before they said they got a yes. Majority of people. Because I limited that anomaly. So now I said, me, and my co-founder said, okay, let's keep going until we get to 120, 150. Once we get in that range, that's what, you know, we look at every investor as just checkbox. Don't listen to what they say to box and you just treat them all like just a list. If we get out of the 150 range... And we go up to 200, which is kind of extreme. Then we should, after we get to 200, we should probably say maybe that's too much. Maybe that's not the right market product market fit. Maybe we're in the wrong space. But as long as we're the 120, 150, it makes things much more objective because then you're not looking at it as like every no, oh my God, oh my God, I'm getting rejected. It's more like you're just one out of 120, 120 people, one of 150 people. And it became so much easier to swallow that pain because it no longer it became pain, it became just a checklist. We're just like literally cross people off Excel, done, 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 done versus no, 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 no. I think that was very helpful for us. But when you eliminate that subjectivity and that emotion, it's much easier to understand where you fall. And I always tell people like, you should always quantify things where it is and eliminate anomalies because I have seen people who've gotten 400, 500 no's and they're still going. And to those people, sometimes I'm like, hey guys, maybe you should pivot. And there's other people again who get two, three no's and then get a yes. And I'm like, okay, you got lucky, right? Or you were connected or whatever it is. And so, it's important in my mind to have that baseline. What is
0: expectation and where you fall in that? And it's much easier to overcome. As you have these conversations, um, talk to me about the patterns that emerged. So, what were the recurring patterns related to the no's or the rejections, if you will? And then why did folks ultimately invest? What was it about the business that they liked? can these guys run a business, a first-time co-founder
1: and a non-technical CEO or a technical CEO? And so that's step one. And step two is also who needs this? Like, why would anyone in the world pay for this? Who wants this? Like, you guys are insane. And as we kept getting bigger and bigger and better and better, two things unfolded. One is apparently a lot of people want this because thousands and thousands, thousands of customers keep paying for us. And all those people who said no, Immediately, we we're like, oh, boy, was I wrong? And here's the irony of this. The amount of people that came back to us and they're like, hey, I know two years ago my fund didn't invest and I was the lead partner, but can I give you like a $50,000 check because I was wrong? That feels great. I'll tell you that if that's not a good way. But the second piece also, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where the farther you go, the more revenue you make, the more customers you make happy, the more other people see it. And then other people who are smart be like, I believe in this and I join. And so the idea that people always question like 1st and founders is, hey, do people, other people believe in this? Do other smart people believe? And the more of a sudden, your gear goes by, two years go by, and all of a sudden, it's not just me and my co-founder, but we have other people who are also brilliant in our team. So it's not it's no longer me and my co-founder talking to these you know, famous entrepreneur, former entrepreneurs toward founders who are brilliant, but also we have our own team who are also brilliant, entire full brilliant team members. And for us to recruit those people, get them to believe in our vision, it's easier for other people to fall in love with it as well. And so, I mean, in the end, my belief is it all comes down to people. If you have the right people in your company, that's what all makes a difference. And I used to have this idea of like a good person versus a great person is a 30% difference. You get 30% more output. Now, I have a different belief that you get 5 to 10x the output from a great person. The leverage you get in a person is just dramatically bigger.
0: Do you feel like you guys raised at the right time? Do you feel like the market now is too saturated to the point where you'll have a more difficult time raising your next round?
1: I think that ironically again I think we didn't want it, we wanted to raise earlier because valuations were crazy or all this other stuff but i actually think we things worked out perfectly well in some ways I'm a believer that when companies are put in tough situations you get to see who really wins because people that are better uh gets outcompete and it's not this idea of just whoever has more money wins right and when we have these frothy markets people you know there's companies that maybe get 300 million 400 million because investors like sure here's more cash here's more cash you have some famous you know Apple former you know, VP joining your company, therefore, here's about 500 million. In these markets, they don't have these frothy valuations of frothy cash. So now all of a sudden, it's about skill. And I think when it comes to skill, a lot of these companies don't know how it is to be hungry in some ways. And they don't know how to overcome obstacles because money helps solve a lot of problems. When money goes away, how do you solve those problems? And so I think we're now in a position to outcompete a lot of these companies who've been
0: lucky historically. with just having money. Does your background help with this at all? So you were born in the Ukraine, immigrated to the U.S. when you were nine. You've mentioned that your parents had a surreal work ethic. Do you feel like having this background contributes to your success and this hunger that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was talking to someone earlier the other day, and they've actually asked me this other so day. We're talking, they like, "Oh, I read read of that you've been over 100 countries before 30," and I said, <laughs> "And they're like, and then the question they asked me is like, why?" And they're like, isn't aren't you done like 20, 30? And I thought about it deeply and I realized it probably comes from childhood, right? Like moved to the US, we had no money, like no money. I think it was like nine of us living in a two-bedroom apartment and then slowly getting better and better in life. My parents moved to middle-income housing and bigger housing, and, you know, slowly get bigger and bigger. Over time, I re- like my friends would go study abroad or their parents sent them to their European vacations. I just didn't do any of that. None of them in high school, middle school, college, nothing. The first couple of years of college, even after college, I didn't, couldn't afford it because I just kind of started getting a job. And then after that, once I started making money, I started traveling, the world more. And I realized that part of it is maybe it's this idea that all of us from childhood are some of us are deprived from some things. We try to overcompensate. And I think that, you know, as I was reflecting, I think it's overcompensation, right? It's just like this thing where I need to almost, I miss this thing when I was younger and I'm trying to get it back as an adult. Uh And I think part of it is also, you know, like growing up with nothing. I think that doesn't still drive in you uh, in some essence, I've actually—it's funny—as I look at a lot of other people on our team who are super successful, they're either immigrants or they came from small towns in the U.S. or they had some family problems in their growing up. But a lot of them didn't have the opportunities that other people did. And I mean, I think one of our teammates, for example, you know, she's like an Olympic athlete. I mean, just overcome that—you know—to hit that kind of goal. I mean, it really requires a lot of work ethic. So it's—I think—hardship oftentimes creates character because what's going to happen in life? You hit a wall and. It's, how do you overcome the wall? How do you jump over the wall? How do you go to the side of the wall? And I think that's a piece that drives me. There's a reason you know why sometimes if I have to sit here till two three in the morning. I'm going to sit here till two three in the morning. Do what I need to do.
0: You know, yeah. one of the things that that comes to mind when you talk about this, Dan, is what's happened in the world of venture and venture backed companies. So I think one of the positives, notwithstanding the sort of pullback in venture investments, pullback in valuations tougher environment, heading into the recession, all those things. There's plenty of positives coming out of it. So I think what's great about this reset, if you will, is that companies and founders of all shapes and sizes, including backgrounds, look a whole lot different now. And the patterns are now difficult to draw upon. So founders come from different backgrounds. They now come from different schools. They don't necessarily have to come from Stanford or Harvard. There's great founders without degrees that are getting venture investment. You have location, right? Now, less of a factor. You still don't necessarily have to move to the Bay Area to be a great founder or to found uh, be a founder of a great company. So location or home base is becoming less of a priority for investors. And then obviously, as you mentioned, probably the most important piece that I noted is character, right? Personality, the makeup of the founder, the emotional intelligence of the founder, the self-awareness, the intangibles, if you will. And I think stuff like that just can't be learned. A lot of that is is really learned from childhood or from one's upbringing. So I appreciate you know this this story and, and thanks for sharing it. Yeah. You know what I'll tell you about founders. The one thing I want to mention is I've noticed a lot of companies,
1: and I think we were looking in this, is that when somebody says, I want to start a company, what they do is they go find someone who's their network who they're friends with, starts company with. And almost always the person to find is just like them. This is why they're friends with them. right? And so you have a finance guy starting company, a finance guy, engineer starting company, an engineer. And I think the biggest success I've seen with all companies is go find someone as far as possible from you as you can. Yes, you may not feel buddy-buddy all the time. Yes, you may have some tension because of the way you look at the world, but you want skills that are posing to you. My co-founder his skills are completely... He knows very little about marketing. I know very little about engineering. But the fact that we're so opposing it and pull opposite, it, it's it's been dramatically helpful for us because we're able to focus in our areas, but at the exact same time, we're also just be able to drive things forward faster and just own something where there's not a lot of overlap. And I think a lot of people who join a company go, wow, you guys are so dramatically different that it's two different angles every single time. Every time we think about a problem, there's always two different solutions. We ramp it instead of other people kind of couple this one solution and they have the blinders on. It really helps in that direction. And then the first person we hired was when we, when we turned into our co-founder was this woman, Kara. And she, again, was almost a third part of the pyramid, completely from mindset again. So three of us were just like this pyramid, which completed from extreme spectrums. And again, this causes tension sometimes, but I do have a strong belief that tension is what causes improvement. Without tension, if everyone's yay, yeah, yeah, everyone's going great, you can't grow, you can't get better, you just stagnate. And so, you want to create positive tension in some ways. You need debate.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great, great way to look at it. Folks obviously understand this—the power of having complementary skill sets, if you will, from your co-founders. But this idea of creating positive tension, I think, is so important. You know, circling back to something that I wanted to touch on before we wrap up today is this idea of sourcing talent. Talk about it first. I mean, you, you guys don't come from HR backgrounds. Uh, you don't have any experience recruiting talent. But as you've pointed out there's a 5X or 10X difference between a good person and say an average person, if you will. So what have you learned in terms of bringing on good talent and what can you share in that regard? So there's two points I'm going to mention. The first point is the best people, actually people don't have the sexy
1: backgrounds because the, the problem you have, you have some people who are to stand for Harvard, brilliant and you want those. The problem is that everyone wants them. But if you get someone whose background is unique, you actually get much more out of them. One is they have this chip on their shoulder to prove themselves. But the second piece is, and this is a nice thing, is like, they're much more receptive talking to you because they're not getting pulled every day from, you know, recruiters reaching out to them, asking them. So they feel like they want to contribute and they want to be part of something bigger. You have to truly understand deeply, like, what is what's driving them? And if it matches what you can offer, then you start the interview process. And so I think once I started doing that, we started realizing that we were able to very easily convince really good people to join our company because you, Don't have to sell this like high level BS vision. That's what every corporation does. Like, join us, we're entrepreneurial, right? And it's like enormous corporations, 100,000 people. Like, no, you're not. But when you understand what drives this individual, and first of all, you realize, are they fit or not fit? A lot of times they're not fit, it's okay. But if they are fit, then it's much easier to have a conversation about that specific topic. And a person feels like you understand or you care about them. And I think that part matters a lot.
0: Dan, thanks for coming on the show, man. It was such an interesting conversation. Congrats on all the success. For listeners who are unfamiliar, NutriSense.io, NutriSense, N-U-T-R-I, Sense.io. Where else, Dan, can people follow you? Uh, Hit me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to help anyone. I'm a big fan of helping other founders in any way I can. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by ScriberBase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at ScriberBase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on.